This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. A B.C. woman is alleging Greyhound Canada endangered her 14-year-old son, leaving him stranded and alone in a bus depot near Edmonton. The teen was trying to get home after a visit with his dad in Grand Prairie. But when he tried to transfer from one Greyhound bus to another, the company denied him a ride. Catherine Urquhart reports. 14-year-old Sheldon Scott can't wait to get home to Kamloops. This after the teen was left stranded by Greyhound. I'm kind of freaking out. You know, I'm in a place that I've never been before. Um, I don't know anything there. Apparently we were beside the sketchiest bar in town. The only people that I knew around the area were my great aunt and uncle. It all started Tuesday night when Sheldon boarded a Greyhound in Grand Prairie after staying with his dad. But at midnight, when it came time to transfer buses in Spruce Grove, the driver refused to allow him on board. It's like, all right, how old are you? I was like, uh, I'm 14. He's like, oh, well, I can't take you on my bus. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, it's illegal. Two RCMP officers assisted, buying him McDonald's and tracking down a great aunt and uncle who took him in for the night. I was completely shocked. What, what do I do? I'm in Kamloops, my kids in Spruce Grove. Um, what do I do at that time? Mom says the trip was pre-approved by Greyhound. They told me um, because he didn't have ID to set up a password, which I did, and he had the password, he had his confirmation number. I know that there was rules and I get that, but somehow somebody bent the rules at the beginning and to stop that in the middle of his destination is, is frightening. Now the teen is being told that he will be allowed on that very same bus tonight for the last leg of his journey. I don't understand still. I don't understand why why I even had the problem. Sheldon not really looking forward to the 10 and a half hour ride on a Greyhound, but keen to get home. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Now, we did ask Greyhound Canada for a comment on this incident, but they did not get back to us by deadline. Wildfire crews are having a tough time battling a blaze threatening Telegraph Creek in northwestern B.C. The Alkali Fire has merged with the South Stikeen Fire and is exhibiting aggressive, volatile fire behavior. Fire information officers say additional structures have been lost since yesterday's total of 27, but it's unclear at this point just how many. Everyone in Telegraph Creek, Telegraph Creek is under an evacuation order. Evacuees are in Dees Lake and other nearby communities. 95 crew are working on the fire along with 17 pieces of equipment. 10 helicopters and an air tanker are also assisting efforts. And we have breaking details about a new wildfire, this one between Clinton and 70 Mile House. It's located northwest of Big Bar Lake. No details yet on how it started or its size. The video just sent to us from our Chris Galas, who's vacationing in the area. It's believed it started about an hour ago. We do have calls into the wildfire 
Press Service, and we'll have more information when it becomes available. And an evacuation alert has now been upgraded to an order in the northwest corner of the Caribou Regional District. This one involves close to 100 properties north of Anaheim Lake. It's due to the dangerous fire behavior of the Shag Creek wildfire, now estimated at 900 hectares. That fire started one week ago by lightning. Metro Vancouver issuing an air quality advisory today and perhaps surprisingly it is not due to wildfire haze. The advisory covers the eastern part of Metro Vancouver as well as the entire Fraser Valley Regional District. It's being issued because of high concentrations of ground level ozone that are expected to persist until a change in the weather. We would advise people to avoid outdoor uh, activities, strenuous activities, uh, particularly late in the afternoon uh, or early evening in eastern parts of Metro Vancouver as well as the Fraser Valley. And meteorologist Christy Gordon is here now with more on just how hot it is out there. And Christy, when will be getting a break? So record-breaking temperatures again today. It is incredibly hot, especially when you take into account the humidity, the coastal humidity. This is what it feels like right now. 40 degrees in Abbotsford, Chilliwack, 37 in Pitt Meadows and Aldergrove. And I've had dozens of tweets today from people showing their car thermometer readings. This one was the hottest, 49 in Campbell River. Now, tomorrow is going to be hot also, but not quite as bad. 32 degrees away from the water. But real relief isn't expected for both the heat and the air quality until late Friday through our Saturday. All right, Christy, we'll check back with you a bit later. It is a good idea to check on the elderly or those at risk in this heat. On the downtown east side today, the Union Gospel Mission was handing out water to the homeless. The extreme heat poses a potentially deadly risk to those who have a hard time avoiding it. The best advice, if you see someone who appears to be passed out in the blazing sun, if you see somebody and you think that they're in a really bad place, you got to trust your gut. Trust your instinct. You don't have to approach them very closely. You don't have to touch them, but you can approach and just say, hey, are you okay? Now, if you get no response after several attempts, you are advised to call 911. The Union Gospel Mission is also putting out an appeal for summer gear, including hats and sunscreen, as they are completely out of items to help those less fortunate right now. The city of Victoria is planning on removing a statue of Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, from City Hall. It's a move the mayor says is about reconciliation. Kylie Stanton has more on when this will happen and the reaction. Kylie. Well, so if it's actually taken about a year of discussions to get to this point, but as of Saturday, the statue behind me will officially be coming down. And while it's a bold move by City Hall, there's mixed reactions. Some saying this could be a slippery slope. For 36 years, this statue has stood here, a symbol of Canada's origins. But now, its days are numbered. In order to really commit to reconciliation, uh, we need to remove the statue of Johnny MacDonald from the front steps of City Hall. The decision was made by what's known as the City Family, <laughs> consisting of a group of councillors and representatives of both the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations. Every time city family members walk into a gathering about reconciliation, they need to walk past this, this figure. And, and so too for every other Indigenous person who comes into City Hall. I ask you to take the dare! Sir John A. Macdonald may have been a founding father of our nation, but he's also seen today as an architect of the residential school system that harmed Indigenous people for generations. 
Since then, Canada has changed, and now many in Victoria are applauding City Hall for changing with it. It doesn't belong. Whatever we can do to help reconcile. Get rid of all the old white men. But there's also concern this is just the beginning. I do think it's a slippery slope. I think you have to consider all angles. It's like at what point did the floodgates open and then just anything goes. In the U.S., the debate over historic monuments has become a major flashpoint. Confederate statues are a painful reminder of America's era of slavery, and some say symbolic of the racism that exists to this day. As for Sir John A., his name is on schools, Ottawa's airport, money, stamps, memorials and mountains. And he's not the only one. What should we do with the other reminders of the past in our city? And as we know, we have statues of and reminders of many of the people who've, who've shaped our history. So those are other decisions for other people at another time, but I'm, you know, that today we're just talking about the statue. Council will vote on the removal on Thursday, but it's expected to pass. Many basing the decision not on where we've been, but where we're going. Now the statue will be stored by the city. In its place will be a plaque explaining some of the history and what the plan is moving forward. This will allow the First Nations to perform a healing ceremony. Eventually, there will be an art piece in its place that's reflective of their culture. Sophie? Kylie Stanton reporting in Victoria. Kylie, thank you. Vancouver police need your help locating a man wanted Canada-wide. 58-year-old Dane Von Billings was last seen leaving his halfway house in downtown Vancouver at 6 p.m. on August 5th, driving a pickup truck that he had permission to use. That truck was found later that day at Cypress Bowl with the back window smashed. Von Billings was on day parole for second-degree murder committed in the mid-1980s. If you have seen him, you're asked to call 911. Investigators have now ruled a fatal two-alarm house fire in East Vancouver accidental. The fire broke out yesterday morning, consuming a home on East 3rd Avenue near Skeena Street. The body of a man, a tenant of the home, was later found inside. Investigators say it will take some time to determine an exact cause, but they have ruled out foul play. I can say we have had six fire deaths in 2018 in the city of Vancouver. And the multiple fire fatalities to date have been directly linked to the lack of working smoke alarms. The name of the victim has not yet been released. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh announcing today he will be running in the upcoming by-election in Burnaby South. That riding was held by MP Kennedy Stewart, who is hoping to become Vancouver's next mayor. Ted Trinecki was at today's announcement and explains how Singh is trying to win over the community. In blistering heat on a Hollywood North movie set, so began Jagmeet Singh's journey to finally getting elected as a member of parliament. I want you all to know that I intend to run in the upcoming by-election here in Burnaby South. Made possible by current MP for Burnaby South, Kennedy Stewart, who submitted his resignation on August 1st saying he wants to run for mayor in Vancouver. I came to Jagmeet and said I was going to run for mayor of Vancouver, but I did suggest at the time that it would be a very good place for him to run. I mean, he's been here a number of times. I, I supported him uh, during the leadership race. He came to Burnaby lots. Jagmeet Singh couldn't have grown up further from Burnaby, raised in St. John's, Newfoundland, and then Ontario. 35,000. He was elected as party leader in October last year. He was asked numerous times today what he could possibly know about Burnaby and if he would live here. You will move your family to Burnaby if you win or just you will have a place here? Me and my wifey, we're coming together. <laughs> and if you 
I should ask you, you're okay with that, right? <laughs> Heck yeah. He's a criminal lawyer who also served as an MLA in Ontario. He's trilingual and is clearly liked by this pro-NDP crowd at today's event. Affordable housing's my thing, and I know that having a candidate like Jagmeet here in, in our area will do nothing but help that. I think he's a young, fresh face. Um, that was one of the problems that the party's had uh, over the last few years. He is for much more affordable housing, a new Burnaby hospital, and a universal pharma care program. And he is against public money being used to twin the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Hey, hey, hey. How's it going? All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with a closer look at Jagmeet Singh's strengths and weaknesses. Keith? Yeah, so if you know, he's running in a, a riding in which I grew up, so I've got some familiarity with uh, South Burnaby, but the riding has changed significantly in terms of demographics over the years, and I think that probably is going to help someone like Jagmeet uh, Singh. But he does have strengths and weaknesses. Let's start with his strengths. First of all, he's a star candidate, no question, uh, because he's the party leader, and that does bring a prestige factor into play that can appeal to a lot of voters out there. It's nothing like having a party leader as your representative. You get more attention, certainly. Uh, also, his ethnicity, uh, the first ever seek leader of a major political party in Canada, I think will play well in Burnaby's uh, diverse uh, electoral uh, community there. Weaknesses, though, they are significant. He's a complete outsider, as Ted mentioned, born in St. John's. He's from Brampton, Ontario. He's not only just a, a parachuting in from a nearby riding, it's halfway across the country. And also, his personal polling numbers have been low since he basically became leader. He doesn't have much of a profile. He hasn't been able to bring those numbers up to of any, of any su substance, and it's going to be hard to see how he's going to do that in a limited by-election campaign, whatever it's held. And finally, since he's become leader, the NDP's had a long string of by-election losses, seven in a row under Mr. Singh's uh, uh, leadership. So he's got to turn that one around as well. I think the fact, Sophie, today he, out of the blue, said that he is going to move to Burnaby with his wife, if he can find a house or even a rental unit, I think that will bode well with him in connecting with Burnaby voters. That sort of eliminates or gets him over one of the outsider arguments. It doesn't completely eliminate it, but is a pretty good start. So you might get some first-hand experience with uh, Metro Vancouver's housing crisis. Yes. All right. Thanks, Keith. But first, a Chilliwack man is gaining worldwide attention simply for standing up for what he believes in. When Nick Cooper spotted some racist graffiti underneath a local bridge, he knew he had to cover it up. His tweet about the painted wall then went viral, inspiring others to snuff out racism in their own communities. But as John Hua reports, that was a lesson Cooper himself once needed. Nikki Cooper had the extra paint, the spare time, and most importantly, the Chilliwack man had the motivation to make change. It's a great community. We're a very diverse community. Um, it just upsets me to see such hate. That hate came in the form of a swastika and white nationalist message scrawled under a local bridge. I actually thought to myself, someone should paint over that. And then thought, wow, I'm preaching to myself. So Cooper took action and a couple of pictures. <whistles> posting on social media, goodbye racist graffiti, not in my town, thank you. By the next morning, his tweet had taken off. And I actually thought that my phone had been hacked. It's only when I looked at it and realized that the tweet had gone viral, which I didn't even know what it meant at the time. Now, Cooper admits he was surprised by the positive reaction to his tweet, considering most of the social media posts related to racism that have gone viral, including a belligerent businessman talking down to a Whistler bus driver or the verbal assault of an Abbotsford lawyer. Even the racial confrontation on Vancouver Transit. 
All of those paint a negative picture of what's going on in the world today. I think that's a great story. I'm totally against racism. It's a lot of that negative stuff being pushed your way, so it is good to see something that's positive. And behind this brush comes an even more powerful backstory. I was involved in hate groups. I was a right-wing extremist. Um, I believed in some of the stuff that was actually written on that wall. It took complications during the birth of his daughter 20 years ago to make Cooper realize he was wrong. And watched an East Indian doctor and an Afro-Caribbean nurse save my wife and baby's life. While moving to Canada from the UK was like a fresh coat of paint on life, fighting for inclusion is what helps Cooper cope with his past. Maybe by my action they may see what I've done and maybe it may change them. All it took was a can of paint and self-motivation. Now that's a story worth passing on. John Hua, Global News. And some good news for the emaciated orca known as J-50. She has been spotted alive off the coast of Vancouver Island. The whale was spotted along with other members of her pod near Port Renfrew yesterday. Experts were concerned because the sick orca had not been seen since last week. Scientists from both sides of the border are in a race against the clock to try to save her. But even if they are able to locate her, diagnosing the whale and administering antibiotics will not be easy. The streets of Canada's largest city looking more like rivers after a sudden downpour in Toronto last night. The unexpected storm leaving several drivers stranded, also knocking out power and leaving basements flooded. And that unexpected deluge of water left two men trapped in a flooded elevator. The water rising so rapidly it reached their chins. Catherine Ward has more on how their quick thinking led to a dramatic rescue. There is panic, there is praying. When rain started to pummel the city, Claver Fryer and Gabriel Otrin heard the basement was flooding, so they went down to check on Claver's car. The two got on the elevator but quickly realized they were in trouble. Water started pouring in. It started gushing right away, and the uh, elevator never knew that it actually got to the basement level, to the parking garage, so it just kept on getting stuck and uh, would not respond to any of the buttons that we were pressing to go up, so the water started coming in immediately. Within minutes, the water was at waist height. The phone in the elevator was dead because of the water coming through. Uh, so our last hope was really to try to find a way to get cell signal. Luckily, yeah, no, no Gabriel had brought his bad. cell phone. The men started to try and break these, through the ceiling to right see here. if they like could get reception. So I climbed up on the, on the railing and I tried to push it. I noticed it wasn't moving and, you know, tried to use a, a little bit more force to get it out. You know, I was mostly using my head. It was more effective. Uh, I'm holding the phone above water and holding myself up with one hand against the opposite wall of the elevator. Uh, and I was just trying to make sure that that phone didn't fall in the water. Using nothing more than a notebook and sheer force, they broke through the emergency panel that was locked from the outside, but just inches. They estimate there was less than a foot of airspace left inside the elevator. Irene Vance works in the building as a property accountant. She heard the banging and quickly called 911. Heard screams, voices, help. They said, help, 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 get us out of here, help. Police responded within minutes. The officers took off their gear, swam, opened a locked door, treaded water while they performed the rescue. And we could hear them inside screaming for help and saying that the water was getting too high and that uh, they needed us. So we started trying to pull the door open, but it was just, the pressure was too great. So uh, Josh immediately went and went upstairs and got a, a pry bar. Eventually, the pry bar worked and the rescue was executed with only minutes to spare. Throughout the ordeal, Claver kept thinking of his 14-year-old daughter. 
while Gabriel relied on his faith to see him through. I prayed about it and I was able to remain calm as a result because I knew that God would save us. I got the word that, you know, now is not my time, so I remained calm and did what I could to uh, help get us out. Catherine Ward, Global News. Police in Alberta are trying to determine what was behind a deadly crash near Jasper. A van collided with a car along the scenic highway, leaving six people dead and two more seriously injured. Amazingly, a toddler in one of the vehicles walked away unscathed. Global's Vinesh Pratap has more from near the scene. One can only imagine just how tragic this accident was. You can see the charred asphalt here, an indication of just how severe uh, this head-on collision was. Now, here's what happened. There was a van that was traveling northbound on this highway. There were five people in that van, members of the same family from the United States. That van struck a southbound vehicle with four people inside. The four people in that vehicle, they died at the scene. Two people in the van, they were also killed. Two other people, they were airlifted to hospital in Edmonton and are in serious condition. Now, amazingly, uh, there was a fifth uh, passenger in that van, a toddler, but that toddler did not suffer any injuries at all. Um, that toddler was taken to hospital um, out of an abundance of caution. Now, many people uh, came upon the scene and they were in shock, but uh, some people did what they could uh, pulling people out of vehicles, performing CPR, doing whatever they could to help. We spoke with a couple of witnesses. The people, the bystanders, were really amazing. You know, they, they um, pulled the guys out, um, began first aid and CPR. We called, uh, you know, what do you need? And then we went through the line of cars who had first aid kits, who had blankets and water and... Um, you know, uh, CPR mask, I mean, uh, you know, a mouth-to-mouth mask, and who knew CPR? It was burning, so we shouted for uh, uh, to anyone can help with the fire extinguishers and shovels and blankets. And we were a little bit successful at getting that fire off, off the trees. This is a tragedy to report on. It, it comes on the heels of four other terrible collisions that have happened in the province just in the last four days. And so this has been a terrible week for the province and a terrible week for tragedies on the highways. And, and, and it, uh, it's really unfortunate to have to report on these. Now, in the immediate aftermath of that accident, there was a third vehicle that came upon the scene uh, wanting to avoid the accident. The vehicle ended up in the ditch. There were two people in that vehicle. They suffered, fortunately, only minor injuries. The investigation into the accident continues. Vanessa Krakow, Global News. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Check out this rare phenomenon captured on camera in the UK. Firefighters in England were responding to a blaze at a plastics factory when this fire NATO appeared. The unusual sight is caused by cool air suddenly rushing against the hot air of the fire, creating a swirl similar to how a tornado is formed. 
New and disturbing details are coming to light today about a compound in New Mexico where 11 children were found living in squalor late last week. It turns out those children were being trained to be killers. And the troubling details don't end there. In the desert of New Mexico, allegations so disturbing they're difficult to believe. They had these kids they were keeping here that never even came out. In court today, the five adults believed to be the parents of the 11 children rescued from filth and starvation at this New Mexico compound. Court documents allege the children were being trained with assault weapons to commit school shootings. There was a shooting range built on the west side of the property. The sheriff describing the suspects as Muslim extremists. Reports suggesting they may somehow be related to a controversial Muslim faith leader in Brooklyn who has been linked to the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. Authorities say a secret message sent from inside the compound led them to the kids. A note saying, we are starving. Investigators had been searching for a three-year-old boy named Abdul Ghani Wahaj, believed to have been kidnapped by his father, Sadaj Ibn Wahaj. Court documents saying the father wanted to perform an exorcism on the child. When they raided the compound, deputies say they found an arsenal of loaded firearms and 11 emaciated children aged 1 to 15, but no sign of Abdul, the missing 3-year-old. Then, during interviews with the children, they were told about a small body buried in a tunnel or a toilet room in the compound. We discovered the remains yesterday on Abdul's fourth birthday. A horrific discovery with new chilling details growing more alarming by the day. Gotti Schwartz, NBC News. Some shocking video you have to see to believe a dash camera capturing a very close call on a Toronto highway. Now, before we show you, we should tell you everyone survived. Now, you can see a man standing beside his vehicle along the median on the 401 when a car slams into him at high speed. All you can see is debris flying. Two people were taken to the trauma unit with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. A third victim was taken to hospital for minor injuries. A tow truck operator was the one who caught it all on camera. Police say this is a stark reminder to obey the province's slowdown and move over law. In Health Matters tonight, a major milestone in heart transplantation is being celebrated in this province. As of today, 500 transplants have been completed in B.C. As Aaron MacArthur reports, this important step is a reminder about how vital it is to sign up to be an organ donor. It's an exclusive club. No one wants to join, but everyone is thrilled to be here. And there's a new member, Mark Baines, now the 500th person to have received a heart transplant in B.C., a gift he is eternally grateful for. With the transplant, I'm able to take the second chance and really give back, both on the transplant side and on the heart failure side. So, I mean, I'm just so grateful. And just for the second chance of life, it's unbelievable. It really is. Heart transplants have been a viable medical treatment since the 1970s. But it wasn't until 1988 that it became a treatment option in B.C. 30 years ago, Katie Welsh became one of the first Canadian kids to get a transplant. She is also one of the most recent patients, getting a second heart just a few months ago at St. Paul's. At the time when I had my first heart transplant, I always felt like kind of the only one because there wasn't many around. And now it's like just there's so many stories and so many recipients and uh, it's, it's just amazing. Patient outcomes are improving. The five-year survival rate is now above 85%. And at St. Paul's, the numbers are better than average. New advances have stretched out some transplanted organs to beyond 30 years. Some patients say more can still be done.
There's medications that we need to have, um, the, uh, and there's many advances, um, but those always seem to lag in B.C. Organ donation rates remain the biggest barrier to more people getting their second chance at life. More than a million British Columbians have registered their intent. That's less than a quarter of the population. But seeing what a second chance actually looks like should be all people need to sign up. The second chance is really being able to live the life I want to live. Like that Don King said, add things back onto the bucket list. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, we've all heard the statistics that cesarean deliveries are going up. Now a new study says there are ways to reduce C-sections in healthy first-time mothers. Their research suggests inducing labor at 39 weeks could increase the likelihood of natural delivery, challenging a long-held belief. Got a video of Tonight, the new study may come as a surprise to new moms, who for years have been told by doctors that inducing labor could be dangerous, leading to complications and unnecessary C-sections. That's my panda. That's what concerned Lex Owen, who wanted to induce because her husband is in a wheelchair and can't drive. I was really hoping to avoid a C-section, if at all possible, as I think all women are. But according to the new research, electively inducing labor could actually help some mothers avoid C-sections. Scientists looked at more than 6,000 healthy first-time mothers. Those who were induced near their due date at 39 weeks had a significantly lower risk of needing a C-section, about 3% lower. If it's not causing harm and potentially leading to benefit, it's certainly something that we believe that women should have a choice about. And the new study says elective inductions can have other surprising benefits. The new moms who were induced also experienced less pain during delivery. New information giving peace of mind to Lex, who scheduled an induction, helping her feel more calm and prepared for the arrival of her greatest joy, a healthy baby boy named Kincaid. The surprise waiting in the water for these lucky B.C. tourists up near Port Hardy. That's right after Christie's forecast. All right, meteorologist Christy Gordon back with us as we continue to talk about talk about how hot it is. Yeah. And we do love water, especially right now. <laughs> especially on days like this. That's right. We will love water Wednesdays. Thanks to everyone who sent in their tweets. When I go to refresh our water in my cat's bowl, I use the old water for my house plants. Great idea, right, said Red. And another one, leaving grass clippings on your lawn to decompose reduces evaporation so your lawn doesn't need as much water. Thanks everyone for your tweets. You can send me your tweets as well. Just use the hashtag we love water. We'll show your tweets every Wednesday. Now we show do this earlier. These are car readings coming in. This one, 42 in Burnaby. Thank you to everyone. Now, by the way, I showed you one earlier from Campbell River showing 49 degrees. Those aren't official readings, everyone. I had someone tweet me going, it's not 49 in Campbell River. I know. Here's a look at the actual numbers out there. So, 31 in Vancouver, 29 out towards the coast. Further inland, 37 degrees in Cultus Lake and in Chilliwack, 34 in Langley and Alder Grove. And the hot spots were 41 in Lytton, the hotspot across Canada, 39 in Lillooet and also in Trail. Campbell River was actually at 33. But incredible heat today, that's for sure, but a lot of smoke. Widespread smoke through the Caribou Central Interior and down through the south as well. And this smoke is spreading off into Alberta. In fact, all the way into northern Ontario, both our smoke and the smoke from the fires in California spreading quite far across the country. And that's all because of the jet stream, but it's causing air quality advisories across 
across much of the province. We've been added to that because of the ground level ozone, and that's because of the stagnant pattern that's created from a big upper level ridge. But that's going to shift out by Saturday. This low will push in, and that's going to shift out, uh, the, uh, um, increase the or improve the air quality, but also uh, drop that temperature, bring in showers and a risk of thunderstorms. Right now, the showers are mainly along the north coast. Further inland, hot, dry, smoky. Tomorrow will be the hottest for you in the southern interior. Uh, you're still going to be hot on Friday, but really the peak of your heat is tomorrow. Whereas the south coast, one last hot day. Friday will be a transition day. We'll see showers and thunderstorms late in the day. Continuing on Saturday, it's really going to feel cool on Saturday with those showers. But we rebound on Sunday, and I'll leave you with this photo. A beautiful shot from Garibaldi Provincial Park. Thanks to David for that one. Look at the colors. That's a postcard mm -hmm. for sure. All right, thanks very much, Christy. Well, some guests at the Great Bear Lodge near Port Hardy are going home with a whale of a tail. Take a look. Some bubbles along the surface of the water attracted a group of resort patrons, some still in their bathrobes. But what came next didn't disappoint. The small pod of humpbacks breaching the surface to bubble net, a unique way of feeding for the massive animals. This clip, posted by the resort, has now been viewed more than two million times. It's like a small Easy. little Why are we so thing? far apart? Oh, we're on the right side now. Yes. Camera or the one. left side. The camera one is yeah. fixed. I know, it's so much, oh. so much better. So much better. Although this chair is worse than that chair. I know, sorry. I know, this, this chair is like we got it no in the good. back alley This chair is worse than this one? Yes, yes, that's the bad so, chair. Oh, yeah, this is a bad chair. Yeah. So now that we fixed the camera, we can maybe work on the chair. Yeah, I'll work maybe. on the chairs. Good okay. idea. All right. I have life I in the fast on, lane stuck in my head now. You have life in the fast lane. Mm -hmm. stuck I'm not going to sing it, but. Please don't. <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> Why don't you just do sports now? It's just that we don't have time. See, camera to one makes you look so nice. You're singing. The, I know, camera one's beautiful. The uh, Whitecaps in Toronto FC start the Canadian Soccer Championship tonight at BC Place. Now, Toronto will not have its full complement of stars. They have left Giovinco, their best scorer, at home. Whereas the Whitecaps are going all in with their main guys to try and gain an upper hand in Game 1. Now, Game 2, it's a total goal series, is next Wednesday in Toronto. We mentioned no Giovinco, but TFC will be putting out the likes of Michael Bradley and Josie Altidore tonight, so they aren't sending the backup band onto the main stage. And that, along with the fact the Whitecaps' defense has been rather Swiss cheese-like this year, means Vancouver is facing an uphill climb against TFC. Underestimate, it's a difficult tie for us because you don't win the treble like Toronto did last year if you're not a good team. They're hitting form at probably the right time. they got key players all over the park. Um, in a one-legged game, then slight, possibly slightly different, but over two legs we know we're clear underdogs. Rogers Cup tennis, Milos Ronic against Francis Tiafo of the U.S. He's an up-and-coming star. He won the first set against Ronic, but Ronic does battle back to win the second set. Third set, though, Ronic struggling. Nope, that's long. And then this one. Looks easy. No, wide. You can see where this is going. Aronich was down five love at one point in the third set. This is it. He's out. After two rounds. Done. Francis What about Dennis Shapovalov? 
taking on Fabio Fognini, the 14th seed. This is match point, and it's a great match point for Shapovalov. He has won the first set. Looking to put it away here. Doesn't matter where. Fognini puts the ball. Shapovalov is getting it. There you go. Ball game. He moves on to the next round. All right, bathtub racing. There was a time that instead of taking ferries from Nanaimo to Vancouver, our ancestors just used their bathtubs. Why just limit your tub to hygiene when you can also use it as a form of transportation and competition? These days, the tubs do not cross vast distances, but they will be racing off Kitts Beach this weekend. The first time we have seen that in 22 years. And Jay found a local man who has a tub worth racing. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone more excited about the return of bathtub racing in Vancouver than Brian Stooch now. Brian's been racing bathtubs for 36 years, more than half of those decades inside this beloved tub of a boat. This is a uh, bathtub, a super modified bathtub. It's capable of going uh, approximately 40 miles an hour. And uh, actually this bathtub came from Australia in the late 70s. And uh, it's been kicking around and I... Uh, inherited it in about 1991. This is the biggest bathtub in captivity, folks. One bath in this will last your lifetime. Nanaimo hosted the first ever bathtub race back in 1967. For half a century, tubbers from all over North America and the world have thrashed about and been battered in BC's waters. And in the 80s, Australians did the bulk of the winning. Hence Brian's love for his inherited tub. This weekend at Kids Fest, Bathtub racing reemerges on the shores of Vancouver following a lengthy absence. 22 years in the making since they were last here. We're here at Kitts Beach. Uh, unlike previous years where you used to race from Nanaimo to Vancouver, uh, we've set up a one-mile loop track here on the water and uh, fans will be able to stand on the beach and watch uh, a great day of racing. Take me inside the tub. What's it like? Oh, it's great. Um, to start off in one of these super modified tubs, you have to actually lean forward to get it going. And so what you do is you just give it full throttle. You'll lean forward in the tub to the propeller catches. You'll sit back and then away you go. Imagine slipping and falling in your own bathtub at home over and over again. That's the punishment bathtub racing delivers and awaits 30 hardy tubbers this weekend at Kids Fest. You excited to race at Kids Fest? Absolutely. It looks like it's going to be a blast. All right. Red Sox this year, so far this year, 80 wins. One and one Winning percentage, 702. That's incredible. This is off the wall for Mitch Moreland against the Jays. Two runs are scoring. And Boston's up 3 nothing. And they'll add to it. Rafael Devers at the plate. See ya. Fly ball deep to right. This ball's carried. And they've hit double digits now. Boston has 10-5, bottom of the eighth against the Jays. All right. There you go. Thank you very much, sir. Coming up on ET Canada, baby news and music news from Carrie Underwood. Plus, Lauren Miller's directorial debut and why her husband, Seth Rogen, is so relieved. All of that is coming up at 7 right after the news hour. But for now, it's back to you, Sophie. All right. Thanks very much, Cheryl. Well, an American classic reached new heights today. Ford just rolled out of production its 10 millionth Mustang. The iconic sports car has been the auto giant's best-selling sports car for the past five decades, and it's not slowing down.
When Steve McQueen drove a bullet in that epic 1968 chase scene through San Francisco, he also drove the Ford Mustang into the ranks of an American classic. A muscle car for the middle class, affordable and pure fun. When it debuted at the World's Fair in 1964, this is the car that dreams are made of. 22,000 sold that very day. More than a half a century later, it's still revving the hearts of drivers. I love them. It was my favorite car when I was a kid. When Saudi Arabian women got the right to drive last month, this 60-year-old professor became the proud owner of a Mustang she dreamed of for two decades. 54 years after the first one rolled out of the factory, the 10 millionth came off the line this morning. Now, as then, eager buyers are waiting. There's not another one like it anywhere in the world. Taylor Cassidy has bought 60 of them, giving each one a name. He is named Zeus. It's just an American icon. It just works its way into your heart, and it becomes part of you, I think, when you drive it. You, you become part of the machine. Like its namesake, the wild, free-roaming horse of the West, there is no holding back these Mustangs or their owner's love of the open road. What did she call it? Zeus? Zeus? Just hot, 60. Hot green. Lime green. That was awesome. Uh, What's your favorite one? The Shelby. That was like, I think is was that the one that... Late 60s, early 70s. The one that Steve McQueen drove in Bullet was yeah. very okay. cool. And apparently they're redoing that one, but of course it's cool. not metal. That model? Now it's, well, it's, it's kind of, yeah, I guess close enough. Right. Same color, green, all that sort of stuff. I'd I even think it has Bullet written on it somewhere. I'd say a final word on weather, but it's just hot. Hot. Again tomorrow. <laughs> Finally relief late Friday. Have a good evening, everyone. Stay cool.